going to be in Luke chapter 5 this morning, Luke chapter 5. Kind of had some starts and stops in this, uh, in this book as we have, uh, over the last few weeks, for a variety of different reasons. Uh, but I think, it, I think it's going to, uh, to serve us well for this week and next. Kind of uh, a little bit off on what was my, uh, my original plan, but that's all right because uh, clearly God had a different plan for us, and that's, uh, I think it's going to serve us well. Uh, this morning, um, as we, uh, we kind of head towards things for Easter next week, I think this morning will tee us up perfectly for uh, next week and for our Easter celebration. But before we do that, today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to reflect just a little bit on uh, on Palm Sunday, where Jesus rides into town on a donkey, he is fulfilling prophecies all along the way as he uh, as he goes. These century old prophecies, as he comes into town, uh, just kind of one by one, he's fulfilling them and kind of asserting himself as Messiah and allowing and and receiving the praise of the people that are proclaiming him to be just that, the rightful King of Jerusalem and the and the, the King of the people of. Israel, and we kind of see a, a microcosm in that day of the different ways in which uh, Jesus is viewed by so many different people and the different agendas that people have for him. We talked, uh, I, I talked to the students a couple weeks ago and talked about how even those who, who get it right in the sense that they are, they are proclaiming Jesus as king, even they have an agenda for Jesus in this moment. Even they are saying, Jesus, this is what we expect out of you. They expected a Messiah, they expected a king, and some were recognizing him rightly as that person. But even then, they didn't fully understand what it was Jesus was, uh, was doing. And while Jesus was fulfilling prophecies and he was the rightful king, he was doing it in a way that did not focus on earthly kingdoms at all, uh, but about something far, far greater that, that all, almost no one really recognized when he was doing it. And so... This morning, what we're going to do, um, what, what our goal is, is, is to kind of take that mindset that Jesus is king, but not of an earthly kingdom, and let that kind of, uh, let that kind of frame uh, the morning for us in how Jesus goes about his business at the beginning of his ministry. And so what I want us to do is I want to show you how the book of Luke, specifically Luke chapter 4 and 5, sets up the events of Palm Sunday, sets up the events of the Holy Week, sets up the events that we remember and that we reflect on uh, today uh, when we consider this. And so uh, this chapter that is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry begins to set up the, 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 the chapters that would be the end of his ministry. And so as we, as you walk through the, the, the setup that we'll have this week, as you come here for Good Friday and you consider the of Jesus as you prepare for the celebration that is Easter Sunday, you can see that what, we, what we're going to look at today is kind of the prequel to this, right? Kind of the setup for how we got to this place. Kind of the, the flashback in the TV show that goes back and says, how did we get here? And this is, this is where, we're, uh, where we're at. The past few weeks I've been reading a book about the start of the Cold War and uh, kind of spy and espionage stuff that happens uh, during those early days. And um, it's always interesting for me to consider, I like reading about that time frame, and it's always interesting for me to consider those days in the 50s, the very beginning of 
the Cold War, before the Iron Curtain became the Iron Curtain, before it became uh, the U.S. versus the Soviets, before it became all of those things. There was a brief window when World War II was over and when, when we had to figure out our relationship to the Soviet Union. And, and it was this kind of weird arrangement because for a while we were, uh, I guess you would call us allies with the Soviets, kind of a situation where uh, the enemy of my, of my enemy is my friend. That's kind of where we were because they were enemies of Germany, we were enemies of Germany, and so we kind of agreed to work together. And then once Germany was eliminated... We had to figure out how are we going to exist together. And there was a brief window in there, a brief window probably just a few months long, where, where we had to figure out, and the Soviets had to figure out with us, are we going to be friends with these people? Are we going to be on the same side? Are we going to, are we going to establish a new kind of world order where we are working together, or are there other things that are going uh, to happen? But very quickly, the Soviets moved to becoming our rivals and our enemies. And it it makes me kind of think, as I'm reading this book, it makes me kind of think a little bit, how does an enemy become an enemy? How did it happen there in the the period of history? But how does that happen? Because in those early days, it didn't have to be that way. It did not have to be that way. There was a window where things could have been different, where the world that so many of us were born into with the, in, the, in, in the Cold War maybe never happened when the effects that we're still feeling today from that, that kind of hatred between the Soviets and the, and the U.S., where all that didn't have to be that way. But what got in the way of that? What prevented that from happening? How did we end up where we were? And certainly you can point to politics, philosophy, worldview, kind of a lack of shared goals, rivalry, jealousy, fear, pride, arrogance. All of those things played into what would become the Cold War and, and all of the, um, the effects that would come after that. But there was a window there where it just didn't have to be that way. Luke 4 and 5 is kind of that window between Jesus and the religious elite of his time. Luke 4 and 5 is kind of that window where we can say it doesn't have to be this way. Now we know the end of the story and we know how Jesus is turned over to Pilate. Pilate says, no, hang on just a minute. You know, I don't see anything. Jesus is innocent. I don't see anything to try him for. But the, the, the religious elite, the Jewish religious elite said, figure it out. We've got to make sure that Jesus doesn't keep going because we have a massive problem with him. We have a massive problem with him. That's how it ends. We know that because though, so Jesus and the, the Pharisees and the high priests, all of them, all of those people end up as enemies with one another. But here in Luke 4 and 5, it doesn't quite have to be that way just yet. There's a window when it could have been different. And so it, it the, the question that's being asked in Luke 4 and 5 is Jesus comes on the scene is, is Jesus friend or foe? And what are we going to do about him? And so if you read through this chapter with that lens, it will frame some of the things. And so we, we, let's go back a little bit in Luke 4 because we, what I've done so far is we've talked about kind of what happens, the mechanics of what happens. We've talked about demon possession. We've talked about several different, different healings. We've talked about a lot of those, but I've intentionally not talked about 
the, the, the stuff that Luke gives us about the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law that were there when all of this was happening. I've just kind of glossed over that and focused on the events, the, the miracles and the healings themselves. So what I want to do is I want to go back to Luke 4. And I want to just highlight some things that I skipped over before and show you how Luke kind of masterfully uh, ties these things uh, together. So let's remind ourselves of what happens. We go back to Luke 4, the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. In Luke 4, 16 through 30, we saw where Jesus uh, announced his public ministry. Remember, he was in Nazareth. He was in his hometown. He was ready to make what, what I described then as his opening campaign speech that he's going to run for Messiah. And, and, and he has his chance there to raise funding, to get a following, to get all kinds of backing. And, and instead, he takes that and he kind of turns it on its head just a little bit. And instead of walking out of his hometown with all kinds of uh, support and backing, which he easily could have done just by telling the truth, he just would have had to leave out some stuff that he said that, that he ended up saying. All he had to do was just leave out a few things, and he could have walked away with a ton of support. Instead, he almost gets himself thrown off a cliff. That's what ends up happening in this big campaign announcement that he's got. He's in his hometown, and even his hometown is deciding, is Jesus friend or foe? And if your hometown decides that you are foe and not friend, that means your ministry is probably off to a rocky start. And that's where Jesus was. He started his ministry making enemies, and that never changed. That never changed. He keeps, making his, he keeps making enemies as he goes all throughout the gospel. Then Jesus begins his healing, and we have these stories that, of healing that kind of finish out chapter 4, exorcisms and the healing of all who came to him. Jesus wasn't trying to hide his power. He wasn't trying to, uh, to, uh, to, to keep it from getting out. He was healing everyone who came to him. His fame was growing fast. The people were flocking to sit under this great preacher. And as we close out chapter 4, the people are coming, and he tells them that he has to keep moving on to other towns. He has to keep, he has to keep moving on. There's more work to be done. There's more sermons to be preached. There's more people to be healed. There's a, a bigger audience to be reached with his message and his teaching that he has. And so we start chapter 5, and Jesus recruits his earliest followers. But these are not well-connected, well-to-do political maneuvers that he brings in. These are not well-supplied, well-financed men. These are not well-educated men in the best, uh, the best universities or under the best rabbis. These are just common fishermen. A bunch of uneducated fishermen that no rabbi worth his salt would even bother dealing with. But Jesus brings them on board anyway. And he doesn't just bring them on board. He kind of goes out and recruits them and says, I want you to come and be with me. If you want influence in all the high places, if you're intending to become king, these are exactly the wrong people to go and get. And that's who Jesus goes to get. Then we get to the man full of leprosy. He, Jesus heals this man. He reaches out and touches him with no concern for the clean or unclean rules in Leviticus. Instead, with concern in his heart for the man who has been outcast his entire life. And Jesus reaches out, touches him, heals him, and gives him this kind of odd instruction. And we've, we've skipped over this to this point, but this is kind of where we need, to, we need to consider this thread that is in there. So Luke 5, 14, it says this. 
And he charged him, this is the guy full of leprosy who's just been healed, he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, if you spend any time in the Gospels, you come across this uh, in a few different places where Jesus tells someone not to tell others about him and what has happening. And this is an odd command for a lot of different reasons. If you're this guy, remember when we talked about this, the level of outcast that he would have been and how he, he, he would have been like completely ostracized for his community. And so if this guy shows up, the natural topic of conversation is, dude, what happened to you? That, I don't remember you like this. I don't remember. I, didn't you have leprosy? Didn't you have like this like skin stuff? Like, are you sure I can be near you if I'm around you? Am, am I gonna, like that would have been a natural conversation. And he easily could have been like, yes, let me tell you about Jesus. Here's what happened to me. Jesus happened to me. Would have been the perfect evangelism lead in. Like you don't need to ask a question. You know, he doesn't need to go up to somebody and say, if you died today, do you know for sure that you would end up in heaven? He doesn't need that question, right? He's got the ready-made evangelism lead in. And Jesus says, don't use it. I don't want you to tell others about me. We're so used to being told that that is our task as Christians, to go out and tell others about Jesus. In fact, we're shamed for not doing it enough. That when we hear Jesus say, uh, don't go out and tell people, it's really strange to our ears. It's really odd. Like, why would Jesus say this? This doesn't make any sense. So that's the question. Why does this happen? Well, each time this happens in the Gospels, it kind of has its own nuance and its own flavor as to why Jesus says this. But the bottom line is this. It kind of boils down to this. Jesus had a plan, and he needed to be able to tell more people about who he was. And paradoxically, if this man had ran off and told everyone about what had happened, that would actually make it more difficult for Jesus to get his message out. Do you see how that works? So if he goes out, if this man goes out and starts, starts pulling all these people out of this leper community that he had been around and says, you've all got to come and meet this Jesus, Jesus never would have left that spot. He would have been right there in that spot, and it just, that, that's all that would have happened. But Jesus knew he needed to go different places, and he needed to be able to preach his message in all kinds of different ways to all kinds of different people. And so... so I know it doesn't seem to make sense, but it actually would have been counterproductive if this guy had went out and just told everyone about what had, had happened to him. So Jesus says, I don't want you to go out and tell everyone. I don't want you to do that because I need to have some control over the spread of my, my popularity and my fame because I need to be able to go in certain places and do certain things. I have a plan. But, but notice the other part of the command. He says, don't go out and tell anyone. Don't go tell your friends. Don't go tell those that are uh, the, the other lepers. Don't go do that right now. Now, no, that's not a command for us. This is not for us like, hey, we need to hide this under a bushel. It changes for us because Jesus is not, is not here for us now uh, in the same way where we have to kind of let this stuff sort it out. Now, th that command holds. Go and tell people about Jesus. But for him, he's told, don't go tell everybody. But... Jesus says, do go to the priests. Do go to the priests and tell them what has happened. Now, why would Jesus do this? 
And there's a lot of different reasons we can, we can put out there, a lot of different reasons it would be true. Some of this had to do with kind of the ritualistic cleansing that was supposed to happen. Some of it has to do with this man's social uh, capabilities within the, the people of Israel. Some of it has to do with his abilities within the temple. There's several different things that could be at play here. But at least in part, it has to do with the, 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 the rituals that this man was supposed to be subject to in order to become clean. If, 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 if someone becomes clean, what's supposed to happen is there's, there's a whole list of things that are supposed to happen once a, a, a leper becomes uh, clean. All kinds of things that, that, that need to happen. There's an entire chapter of protocol in the book of Leviticus. I showed that a few weeks ago. You remember the, the fine print stuff that was up there? There's a whole uh, list, a whole protocol that is supposed to happen where somebody goes to a priest and says, look, I had leprosy, I had this skin disease, and now it's gone. Here's what I need you to do so that I can be clean again. And I can go and worship in the temple. And so what Jesus says is, I want you to go, and these, these priests that think that they, they have to do all this stuff, I want you to tell them what I said to you. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, be clean. I w-, he, say, he, he said, if you're willing, make me clean. And Jesus said back, I am willing, be clean. And so Jesus had already declared this guy clean. But the priest acknowledging that this guy is clean would have been, would have been a, a friction point, right? Do, do you see how that would work? So if Jesus says this guy is clean, but the priest in the temple doesn't know that this guy is clean, then, then, then there's going to be a friction whenever this guy shows up at temple for worship. Because they're going to say, wait a minute, I didn't say you were clean. And this guy's going to say, yeah, well, Jesus said I was clean, so I'm good to go. Do you see the friction, the rub that's going to occur there, right? So that's, that's, what this is all, that's what this is all about. So there's this whole protocol that if someone was healed of leprosy, then, uh, then, then they had to do, like a whole chapter's worth of stuff. They got to go to their home. They have to purify things in their home. This guy's got to go wash here. He's got to go do this. I mean, it's a long, long list of, uh, of rules. And so I don't know how often someone was healed of leprosy, but I imagine it was pretty rare. I mean, they didn't have like hydrocortisone. They didn't have like some cream they could just kind of throw on it and, and you'd be good. They didn't have a salve ready to go. So like, I, I don't know how often the priest visited that chapter of Leviticus on the scrolls, but my guess is they read it a lot, but they didn't do it a lot. My guess is there weren't a whole lot of lepers knocking down the door of the temple saying, I was a leper and now I'm not. My guess is that it just didn't happen. It was, pretty, it was pretty, pretty rare. And even then, it was a very involved process. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't go through any of that, that ritualistic stuff. He simply says, be clean. And then the man is clean. So my guess is that this man went back to the temple. There's a little bit of speculation here, but I don't think it's, it's reading too much into this. My guess is that this man went back to the temple found the priest, probably shocked the priest and got his attention like, whoa, dude, what are you doing in here? Gets the priest's attention, and then the priest went to find the scroll to remember all the things that he had to do to make this, this guy clean. And as they start reading off all the things that need to be done, this guy says, hey, man, no need. I'm good. 
I don't need you to do any of that stuff. I'm not coming asking you to, 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 to declare me to be clean. Jesus has already done that. I'm good, man. You don't need to do that whole list of stuff. Jesus took care of this stuff. I'm not wasting my time with this, and I would recommend you don't waste your time either. Now, there are a lot of things that make enemies out of people. But telling them that the role that they may have served as the middleman between, between, uh, between sinners and God was no longer necessary because Jesus already took care of it, that's going to make some people mad. That's going to tick some people off. And that's exactly what happens here. There's a lot of things that can make people not like you. But telling them that they're no longer necessary or needed is pretty high up on that list. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, go back to the priest, make your offering. In order to make the offering, he had to be clean. Make your offering there at the temple and tell the priest what has happened. And then peace out, you're good, don't worry about it. The priest, I, I'm, I'm certain the priest was at, at best shot, or at, at minimum shocked, if not completely offended. Of all the people in Israel, the priest probably felt like their job was pretty safe, right? Of all the people in Israel, I mean, everyone wants, like, like that's, the, that's the goal when you get a job, right? You want a job that's a recession-proof job. You want a job that, that, that isn't dependent upon external market factors in order to, to determine your job. A job where economic slowdowns don't really affect the demand for your product. And if there's any job that has high job security, then, then being a priest, the middleman between man and his sin and God and his holiness, that seems like a pretty in-demand job, right? That seems like economic factors are not going to eliminate the need for that job. Man will always sin and God will always be holy. And there's going to need to be somebody to be a mediator between the two. And that was supposed to be the priest's job. The supply side of this equation is pretty, is pretty well taken care of. We've all got plenty, plenty of sin. So when a man shows up and says, hey, this guy Jesus said I needed to show you what has happened, so here you go, I'm good, and that's all I need from you, man. I'm out of here. Uh, you, you can put your list of rules away. I don't need those rules anymore. Uh, that has to cause some friction. That has to create some tension, which I think is Jesus' entire point. I think that's the whole reason he says, don't go back to your colony of lepers and tell them what has happened. Go to the temple and tell him what has happened. Go to the temple and tell the priest what has happened. He's trying to get the attention of the religious elite in town. He's trying to make them make notice of what he is doing. Not of the healing, but of the cleansing. He's trying to get their attention. Jesus is for everyone. And it's time that they get on board with that vision. I think that's what he's trying to do right there. The next story we looked at just a couple of weeks ago where four friends brought a paralyzed man to Jesus and had to lower this man to the feet of Jesus and, 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 and in order for Jesus to even see this man, they had to bring him in through the roof. And, uh, and we focused much of our time on Jesus' healing of this man and on the faith of his uh, four friends whenever we talked, to that, talked about that. But I actually think there's a whole lot more going on in this passage than what we talked about uh, then. So let's dive back into this story and, 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 and see how 
uh, Luke sets this up for us and what Luke's point in telling the story is. It's, it's, it's to tell us about the healing. It's to tell us about his four friends. But I actually think Luke gives us this story for a whole other reason that is the primary reason it is in here. And I think Luke tips his hand, his hand right at the very beginning. We went right by this whenever we read it a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to hear this. Luke 5, 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So Luke introduces a story about a man who gets healed by the, with the, the help of the faith of four friends, lowering this man down through the ceiling. Luke begins that story by pointing out that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law that had come from all over the place, even from Jerusalem, to hear what Jesus had to say. It's not just the sick and the townspeople that are there. It's not just those that came to be healed. It's not just the locals that are around. It was the Pharisees, the teachers, the religious gatekeepers in the community. That's how I'm going to refer to them probably throughout most of the book of Luke. Because it's not just the Pharisees. It's Pharisees, it's Sadducees, it's uh, scribes, it's teachers of the law. It's all of those that are the ones that people would go to and they would say, tell me how to understand this Jesus. It's all the ones that were the gatekeepers of what was happening religiously in that community. And so that is who is there. And it's not just one or two from the town, but they are from all over. And Jesus is making all kinds of noise. And these guys have got to figure out who is this dude? What is he all about? So when this man comes down from the roof, it's not, it's not just that Jesus is about to heal this man. It's that Jesus says, I've got an opportunity to teach a lesson here. I'm convinced that the Pharisees and the, 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 those religious gatekeepers were not there for this teaching. I'm convinced Jesus would have done this completely differently. I think he does this specifically in the way that he does to get their attention. So when this man comes down and he says, all right, it's time for me to press into these Pharisees just a little bit more. And do you remember what he says to this man who can't walk and ends up at his feet? He doesn't say, rise and walk, at least not initially. What does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. That's not an accident. Jesus is pressing some buttons. Jesus is pushing back against the Pharisees. He's making a point. He, he was saying to all these gathered religious gatekeepers, you are not the gatekeepers anymore. You're not the one who gets to decide who God blesses, how God works, how he does these things. You don't determine who gets to know God, be forgiven by God, or be cared for by God. You don't get to limit the grace of God or the work of God. I'm here, my name is Jesus, and I'll do whatever I want for whomever I want, however I want to do it. So much so that, that not only am I going to heal this man and is he going to walk away from this moment, but I'm going to forgive his sins too. And there's nothing you can do about it. He's trying to push back against them. He's not trying to make any friends. Do you know how easy it would be for Jesus? I want you to think about this right now. If you had the power to heal, if you had the power to, to make someone who, who, was, who, was, who, who couldn't walk since birth get up and walk, 
If you had the power to, to remove a fever from a child or from an elderly woman, if you had the power to, 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 to uh, heal skin diseases by simply saying something or laying your hand on do you know how easy it would be for you to make friends? It'd be so easy. And then if you had like this incredible gift of teaching, which even, even the Pharisees acknowledge Jesus is a powerful teaching, so if you teacher, so if you've got the ability to, to, to speak and to engage and to hold a crowd and you can you can heal people, do you know how popular you would be? It would be so easy for Jesus to be popular right now. It would be so easy for him to gain a following. It would be so easy for people to look at Jesus and be like, that dude is amazing. And instead, he takes that gift and he uses it to make enemies. You say, well, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't make enemies. Like, that's the enemy's problem. Well, maybe, but Jesus isn't trying to make friends. Jesus is constantly pushing against these religious gatekeepers and telling them, You're, you don't understand God the way that you think you do, and you definitely don't understand who I am. Jesus is trying to show, when he says your sins are forgiven, Jesus is trying to, trying to show who he is, and his tactic finds, almost, finds its mark almost immediately. They start pushing back by saying, who does he think he is? Who does this man think he is saying your sins are forgiven? To which Jesus begins his reply, what do you think is easier, rise and walk or your sins are forgiven? where he basically, basically lays out exactly who he is. And it's right here at this point that, Jesus, or that the Pharisees, those religious gatekeepers, that they have a choice to make. When they see Jesus do this, when they hear Jesus do this, remember, they saw this man get up and walk. They've got a choice to make. They can lay down their pride, their ego, their entitlement, their education, their job security, because almost certainly following Jesus would be the end of their job. They can, like these outcasts that have come to Jesus and asked for, for, for healing, throw themselves at his mercy and at his feet, accept him for what they've seen, or they can tighten up ranks, push against what they've seen, they can begin to ostracize, criticize, and attack. This is the window right here. This is the critical moment. Who will Jesus be, friend or foe? Listen, this is how Jesus works. This is how Jesus works today. He pokes and he prods. He's not looking to make you a friend. I know we talk about being friends with Jesus and that there's a sense in which that is true. But the only way that that works is if you rightly acknowledge who he is first. He is first the king. He is first the one that demands full allegiance. And he will poke and prod in all of your areas of your life to figure out where you're withholding that allegiance. Where is it that you hold on to that idol? Where is it that you think you've got it figured out and that you need to tell Jesus this is how it should be? He's constantly doing this. 
He did it to the Pharisees. He did it to the, 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 the teachers of the law that said, you can't do that, Jesus. And he says, watch me. And he does that to us today. Is there a sense that we are a friend of God and we are a friend of Jesus? Yes, absolutely, in the sense that he has reconciled that relationship. But make no mistake about it. He comes to you, and before he says, we're friends, he says, I am Lord. And you must acknowledge that first. This is what Jesus does. He's not here primarily, first of all, to comfort He's not here primarily, first of all, to just say all is well. First, he comes and he says, this is who I am, and I will challenge you on your throne. You put me on the throne in the rightful place, and all of these other things will work out. This is the window in the Gospels where Jesus is showing his cards and saying, this is who I am. He knows what he is saying is inflammatory. He knows it will ruffle feathers. But that's kind of the point. He's trying to ruffle those feathers. He wants to see what they'll do when they are confronted with the truth of who he is. He doesn't back down. And in fact, at every moment, it seems like he's looking for ways to press in further and further. Time and time again, he keeps pressing into their hearts, into their minds. And he wants to know, am I friend or foe to you? I'm not going to soften my message. In fact, I'll probably harden my message. So you've got to figure this out. Are you going to be on my side or are you going to be against me? Let's look at one more passage this morning in chapter 5, a new one we've not really looked at yet, and see how this continues to play itself out. Luke 5, 27 through 32. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the, the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Levi, Matthew, same person, is introduced to the, the story. There's no context given for, uh, for how he becomes a follower of Jesus. There's no context given for, uh, for any of it because Luke has really one purpose for introducing Matthew to us in this story. He's got one purpose for introducing uh, uh, Matthew. Uh, well, two. One, the two things we need to know. We need to know this guy, Levi, Matthew. I'll just go back and forth between it. So if that's confusing, sorry. Uh, this guy, Levi, uh, he's a tax collector. You need to know that. Uh, and two, he left everything to follow Jesus. That's what you need to know. You don't need to know anything else. That's all that Luke cares about because that's all he wants us to know to set up the next stage of this story. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled with his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is having a dinner party with people that are not approved on the Pharisee uh, guest list at all. These are people that would not be welcome to dine with the Pharisees, not even close. They are the religious elite, the spiritual elite, and these people are not invited. But Matthew, the hated tax collector, calls out his friends, and, and, and these are the people that while the religious elite wouldn't be caught dead with them, Matthew says, these are the people I'm inviting to the party. Jesus, I want you to meet these people. 
You have to understand the context of Matthew as a tax collector. What this means as a tax collector is that he was a Jewish person that had chosen to take sides with the Roman oppressors. It made him not just an enemy of the Jewish people, but a betrayer of them too. He was the worst of the worst because he was everything that they were trying not to be. So a guest list of his friends is not just a list of unsavory characters. Whenever we say that Jesus ate with, uh, that Jesus was friends with, with, with tax collectors and sinners and that he ate with tax collectors and, and sinners, a lot of times what we, what we use that to mean is Jesus liked the rebels just like me. Like Jesus, Jesus liked the crazy people and that we, we, should, we should be all right with that. That's not really what's going on here. This is really like Jesus is hobnobbing, hob, hobnobbing with the traitors. He's hobnobbing with those that are, that are against us. He, he, he's hanging out with the people that we love to hate. I think it's interesting if you notice the, 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 the slight but telling differences uh, in verse 29 and verse 30. Luke describes this party as tax collectors and others. But in verse 30, when the Pharisees are accusing Jesus... They, they, he, the, the Pharisees say the tax collectors and sinners. That's just a small little nuance there, but I think it's really interesting. It's not that the Pharisees are wrong, but it's the disdain and their moral assessment that becomes so clear. I mean, maybe these guys, maybe these religious elite were giving Jesus one more chance right here. Maybe they were giving Jesus a chance. After all, if he's the Messiah, let's see what he does. But time after time, he keeps pushing their buttons. He keeps talking about how this kingdom is for everyone. And then he keeps doing things that back that up. It keeps showing that this kingdom is truly for everyone. I cannot overstate how off this would have been to these, religious, these Jewish religious gatekeepers. The Messiah was not for everyone. It was never meant to be for everyone. The Messiah, he was to be for Israel. He was to be for the righteous. He was to be for the clean. He was to be for the ones that were following the rules. The Messiah was to be for the religious gatekeepers. That's what the Messiah was supposed to be for. But time and time again, Jesus says, I am the Messiah and I'm here for everyone, like it or not. Jesus says, you can come too. I mean, can you imagine how, like, how, how offensive that would have been to the, the, the Pharisees? I can just imagine Jesus on this way into this dinner party, and they're saying, oh my gosh, you're having a dinner party with tax collectors and with sinners? I can't believe you're doing this, Jesus. And Jesus says, want to come? You're welcome to come. The door is open for you. I'll invite, I'll, I'll, I'll get with Matthew. I'll have Matthew set out an extra table for you. They would have been beyond offended because they didn't belong there. It wasn't supposed to be for them. The Messiah was, wasn't supposed to be for that group that was at the dinner party. It was supposed to be for those that were, being, that were, that, that were, that were on the outside. And time and time again, Jesus says, you can come too, but I'm not just for you. I'm for everyone. I came for everyone that recognizes their need for healing. I came for everyone that recognizes their need for a doctor. Last night, I, I told, or last Friday night, I told you guys, um, 
I told you guys last week I, I ended up in the ER with, with the eye pain, and that's, that's I couldn't preach last week. I couldn't do that. That's why I got my glasses on up here. Um, appreciate so many of y'all that reached out were praying for me this week. My vision is much better. Just still can't wear the uh, the contacts. Um, but uh, last Friday night, I found myself in the ER with tremendous eye pain. And that night started really, kind of went down all day Friday, but the pain really set in about 9, 9.30 on Friday night. And I did what many of you have done before, had the conversation many of you have found yourself in need of medical care. I wrestled on whether or not to go to the ER at midnight on a Friday night. Do I really want to do this? Is this absolutely necessary that I do this? Because this is, I'm probably going to go there and sit there for hours and hours and hours, and I'm going to be miserable. I'd rather just be miserable at home. Maybe I'll fall asleep if this is, like, and so we wrestled with this for, for hours. Emily kept saying, are you sure you don't need to go to the ER? And I'm like, leave me alone. I don't need to go to the ER. I don't want to go to the ER. They're not going to help me. This is eye stuff. I don't have a broken arm. Like, this, like there's no eye doctors in the ER. I'm like, just, I'm not going to the ER. This will be pointless. I just want to go to sleep. But my eye pain was, was worse whenever I closed my eyes. And so it just kept getting worse and worse. I couldn't. I was pacing, I couldn't sit still, like, hey, it was just, it got, it got really, really bad, and, uh, and I, I mean, probably at least five or six times, Emily's like, are you sure you don't need to go to the ER, which is really her saying, can we just go to the ER, can we just go on and do this, because we're going to end up doing this eventually, um, and I was like, no, I don't, I don't think this is, this is what we need to do, uh, and then eventually, at about 1230, I was like, all right, we need to go to the ER, like, I, this is unsustainable for me. My eye is killing me. This really, really hurts. And I don't know what they can do for my eye, but they're going to have to do something because I can't take this anymore. I need to go. Now, if I'd gone to the ER and when I got there, they put me in a room and they said, the doctor will be here eventually, but there's a board meeting upstairs. Um, there's a board meeting upstairs. Whenever they're done, they're done. Sometimes those board meetings last few hours. Sometimes they're a couple days. Uh, but the doctor will be down here uh, eventually. Now, that wouldn't have made any sense at all. And I would, have been, uh, I, I, I would have been without much hope at that point, right? I would have been stuck. I would have been just sitting there in that waiting room thinking, I need, I need something for my eye because this really, uh, this really, really hurts. But this is exactly how so many churches operate today. This is exactly how they work. We tell people, you're welcome at church, and then we expect them to come in, get healthy, and then find their way up to the board meeting. And when they get there, we say, hey, we've been waiting on you. Glad you're here. That is not the way that this is supposed to work. That's not how it works. Jesus came for everyone. And praise God, that means me and you. If you're thinking, yes, he came for that person that needs him so bad, you're probably there with the religious gatekeepers. It's all of us. We need the doctor. You know what I think probably happened after Jesus gave these Pharisees this answer? After he said, so they're saying, Jesus, why are you going into that dinner party? Why are you going into that place with these people that we hate so much? And Jesus says, I came for those that are sick. I came to call people to repentance and to righteousness. We're conditioned to hear that 
that reply from Jesus as a, as a slight to the Pharisees because we know the rest of the story. And it, and it is a slight to the Pharisees. But we know more of the story. I don't think the Pharisees probably heard that as a slight. I think whenever they heard Jesus say, I came for those that are sick and to call sinners to repentance, I wonder if the Pharisees didn't look at each other and be like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, go, go, go talk to those guys. Those guys are our traitors. They've betrayed us. Go, go in there to, to your little party. I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't be caught dead with them. You know, you know in fact, it's, it's probably true that even having dinner with a tax collector or those that were deemed sinners probably would have made them unclean. Like they would have had to gone through the, the cleansing rituals in order to go back to temple. So the Pharisees are like, I'm not going to do anything that's going to make me unclean. But I tell you what, Jesus, you go ahead. Those people do need to be called to repentance. Go ahead and do it. They need to repent. And so the church has acted like this for centuries since, just like those Pharisees. Yes, go preach the, go preach the, 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 the message of repentance to those people. And those people are just the people that you don't like. They're just the people not like you. You're good. You don't need the message of repentance, but they do. So yes, go preach the message to them. But friend, Jesus came for the sick. He came for those that needed care. And we would, do re we would do well to realize that that is us. I've taken my contacts out of my eyes thousands of times with no problem and no need for a doctor. But do you know what made me go and find a doctor last Friday night? It's when the pain in my eye made it so that I had no choice. I had to find some relief. Do you want to know what will make you go to the doctor spiritually? What will make you go to Jesus? What will get you out of your spiritually stagnant life that you are living? What will get you out of your, your, your life that you are living apart from Jesus or, or with Jesus over in the corner? Do you want to know what will get you past that? It's when the pain of living life without Jesus becomes too much to bear. That's the only thing that will do it. I'm not going to an ER until I have to. I'm not going to the doctor until I realize that if I don't go to the doctor, it's going to be worse for me. And so it is for us spiritually. We don't go to Jesus until we realize that we need Jesus. Like that man full of leprosy, like that paralytic coming through the roof, they knew that they needed something. And that's the place God desires to see us. Not the ones walking away convinced we're good, we've healed ourselves. But the one pleading with the doctor to save us. We need the doctor. This rift between Jesus and the religious elite would only fester and grow. This was the, this was the genesis of it, right here. Right here. So you, get, you fast forward to Palm Sunday, and you see some of the people throwing down. It just says the people. It's not like the religious elite that are there throwing down their cloaks for Jesus. It's just the people. People pick their sides. Was Jesus friend or foe? Was he king or, 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 or was he antagonist? People pick their sides. And on Palm Sunday, all of that comes out. The triumphal entry, all of that comes out. The seeds for what happens in Holy Week are laid right here in Luke 4 and 5. 
And they're laid by Jesus saying, I'm here for you if you'll come. And so the question this morning is, what is Jesus for you, friend or foe? Is he on your side or are you the one that's still running the show? Are you the one that's still saying, I got this, I don't need a doctor? I know it's easy. We're here on a Sunday morning, right? We're, we're here on a Sunday morning. We're, we're choosing to hear a Bible study, a, a, a sermon about Jesus. We're singing songs about Jesus. It can be very easy to think that means that you and Jesus are on the same side. But that is not necessarily true. It's all about your heart and where your heart is. And whenever Jesus pokes and prods and he calls you to to, to forego your idols and he calls you to, to realize your need for a doctor, is your response at that point, I repent, I turn from my sin, or is it, yeah, go preach to them over there. This is the the message of the Gospels over and over and over again. Jesus is for everyone. Everyone. And you're you're part of everyone. But you you have to be in that place that so many people we've already seen in Luke have found themselves. Before God, before Jesus, saying, you, Jesus, I am am casting myself on your mercy. This is the story of the Gospels. And so what are you going to do about Jesus? Jesus. As we head into Holy Week, as you consider today, maybe as you leave here and you go back and you read about Palm Sunday, consider, ask yourself, where would I be in all of this? Repentance is the only option that is there for us. The only option that leads to life. Anything else would be to walk away from the doctor, to walk away from the emergency room and say, I'll figure it out. I got it. And that's death. Let's pray. Father, this morning it is our confession that we far too often try to heal ourselves. That as, 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 as Jesus pokes and prods, as the Spirit moves, as the conviction lays on us, our response is not to ask for mercy, but instead to say, I got this, I'll figure it out. And Father, you know the truth of our hearts. You know the weakness of our flesh. So Father, I pray that you move in our hearts this morning. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to our knees and help us to cry out for mercy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.